Hello and welcome to the TTI Distribution Download, the podcast where we talk about all things happening in the world of electronic components with the specialists of TTI. And now, your host for the TTI Distribution Download, Paula Renfro. Welcome everyone. Thanks for plugging in again to the TTI Distribution Download. Joining me today, I am happy to have TTI's own Vice President of Total Quality, Mr. Kevin Sink. Welcome, Kevin. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. Well, I appreciate you helping us out today as we are going to get serious and responsible with none other than industry subject matter expert on sustainability and compliance, Mr. Mike Kirshner. Hey, Mike, welcome and thanks for being here. Yep. Well, thank you for having me. So, so Mike, tell me, remind me, how long have you been a contributor to TTI MarketEye? Oh, my goodness. We started to publish uh, columns in MarketEye in 2009. And we've done so pretty much nonstop every two months since. Every two months since. So before we start talking about um, current events in the world of Rojas, the Stockholm Convention, and the EU Green Deal, tell us a little bit more about what you do when you're not writing for MarketEye. You know, like your day job, how you make a living? <laughs> <laughs> well, when I'm not mowing lawns, <laughs> I'm, I'm an electronics engineer, just my background is that I, I worked in industry for about 20 years at places including United Technologies, Intel in the semiconductor industry, then uh, moved over to uh, the system side and worked for Tandem and Compaq. Compaq acquired Tandem and Compaq was subsequently acquired by HP. But I left before that uh, HP acquisition and founded uh, Design Chain Associates. And uh, what we do today is help manufacturers understand and ensure that their products comply with environmental regulatory and customer requirements that uh, apply in the markets they're selling their products in. Very good. Kevin, you want to kick us off today? Certainly. So, Mike, we've got some questions for you about some very important topics related to sustainability, the types of things that our components are made of, and in particular, recently there's been a change or a study that was done related to Rojas, and the study is entitled, The Study to Support the Assessment of Impacts Associated with the General Review of Directive 2011-65EU, which is a big mouthful. <laughs> what does that study actually what tell us? Mean? What does that mean? <laughs> Why do we yes. care? <laughs> well, if, if you read the Ross Directive, Somewhere, I think it's Article 24, says by 2021, you have to look at this directive, see how it's working, and determine whether to essentially revise it and update it. And while they've been kind of goofing around with that over the last several years, and I use the goof term goofing around as a technical term, <laughs> they, there's been a lot of changes in the commission itself, well as in the environment around Ross in terms of EU regulations and regulations in other parts of the world. So what they're trying to do is look at how this regulation was working and what wasn't working. And I think this particular study spent more time looking at where there were challenges and issues that should be addressed and how the commission could potentially address those in the next version of Ross. And I went through this 
in the June 2023 uh, column that I wrote. This is the recast column? Yes. Okay. One of the things that the study recommended or mentioned was, as of, and you mentioned it, as of September 2022, this has already been amended like 80 times, um, which means there's always something new for all of the entire industry to learn. Um, so that the rate of increase is dramatic, but and then it has to go out to all the member states to be put into law. Does that process of going out to the member states, does that really make a difference to us as an industry, or do we find that we typically work to what the EU Commission has recommended rather than individual country laws? Well, since Ross is a directive, that means that it is technically targeted at the member states. It's telling the member states, you have to transpose this into your local laws. So all 27 EU member states have to reflect what the commission says, whether they like it or not. If they don't like it, they do have an opportunity to uh, to weigh in before. But uh, as you noted, there's been 80 some odd changes to uh, this particular version of of Ross over the last dozen years. So things change with it rapidly. And since Ross is a harmonized directive across all these member states, they implement it effectively the same way. So everything is consistent, or it's intended to be consistent, across the entire European Union, regardless of which member state you are in, except perhaps enforcement. Everything else uh, is consistent. So industry tends to focus on the directive itself as opposed to trying to figure out how to comply with 27 very similar regulations in the different markets. So, gentlemen, if you if you are a manufacturer in our industry, right, in the component device really manufacturing as well as a supplier, what, what, do you, what are you watching the headlines for? Because as you said, there's been edits, updates many, many. So what is your advice to the layman um, regarding these these updates and this, you know, what was potentially going to be a recast, which I, I think, Mike, you say in your article was not so much. What is your advice? Both you guys. Mike, you go first. Yeah, you got to pay attention. And that's difficult if environmental compliance isn't your primary or only responsibility. I find that a lot of manufacturers make environmental compliance uh, one of many responsibilities for a given person or department. And given the rapid rate of change, the relatively extensive amount of knowledge that is required to support these types of regulations and the complexity. It's important to have a dedicated person or function for environmental compliance. And on top of that, you you need to have some mechanism that tells you when these regulations are changing. There are a couple different services you can subscribe to uh, European Commission's updates on regulations that doesn't always tell you about the details of uh, when there's something coming up for a regulation like Ross, like when there's a change to a uh, an exemption or when a new new exemption is being requested. But I use a uh, a service that that looks for changes on specific web pages, for instance, uh, among other things. And that tells me when the commission changes something on the Ross page, and oh, that that right. helps. Okay, that helps. that's a good tip. 
So, Paula, you asked both of us to comment. And so one of the things that we would look for in, in, in our expert, we do have a person on staff as an expert, it's Steve Summers. And he's always monitoring for changes to, to REACH and ROHAS and SVHCs and just a, other acronyms you can think of. And one of the things that we have to watch for are regulations that impact uh, products that currently contain and need to contain certain materials that are banned, like lead or cadmium, and military devices and a lot of other high reliability devices, you need that. And there's even certain products you really can't, there's not really a good substitute for lead. So watching for these exemptions and how that um, continues or allows for that when we would love to do everything we can to remove it, but we haven't found a suitable substitute for it in the last 10 years. So that's something I think it's important to watch for as well. Not only what's new to being regulated, but what exemptions may still continue because we just don't have a, a great solution instead of that yet. Yeah, military aerospace is actually uh, challenged by all of these regulations. They are kind of stuck using standard off-the-shelf components, so I have to qualify those, and the qual cycle is so long. It's uh, Even though military, European military specifically, is excluded from the scope, there's not enough volume to justify manufacturers keeping separate lines going for them. So there's an entire industry that takes compliant material and replates it with non-compliant so that it'll be performed yes. correctly in the military environments. Yeah. Because yeah. we just don't want a missile to go where it doesn't belong. Right. So we can't take that chance. Yep. Yeah. One of the things that ROAS doesn't seem to address that some of the other regulations do, that it will, even one that we'll talk about later in this podcast, is a circular economy. Um, what, what are your thoughts about that, Mike? Yeah, well, in the column that I wrote a couple months ago now, for instance, if a part fails and it can be replaced or upgraded, the way the Ross directive is written, the replacement parts must either be new or have previously been placed on the EU market and must be as compliant as the product itself. So the spares used must be produced at around the same time or later than the product needing repair or upgrade. I think this needs to be expanded to include spares from outside the EU market. That'll, that'll help. But another fault is that Ross doesn't control replacement substances for those substances that are restricted. So you can replace you know, a banned substance with another substance that itself is ultimately going to get banned. <laughs> so... <laughs> That that kind of prevents circularity. It prevents reuse. It prevents uh, you from having to, uh, you know, from, from actually being convinced that you've solved the problem. For instance, just with Ross itself, uh, it's been shown, for instance, that the overall environmental impact of the currently used SAC alloy, the tin silver copper alloy, is essentially the same as that of the banned tin lead solder. 6337 alloy. Uh, a big part of that is due to the energy used because it's it melts at a higher temperature. Silver and copper are also aquatic toxins, more so than tin or lead, for instance. So it all all evens out in a way to us having made no actual environmental performance progress going to sac alloy. Um, and the same can be said for uh, the very common replacement for decabromodiphenyl ether, deca BDE, 
which was in a lot of cases replaced with decabromodiphenylethane, a very similar molecule, which uh, in fact Canada is just about to restrict. That all sounds very circular to me. <laughs> I, I, know, I know that's not what you meant. It just no, went my head it's going round and round. It is it is very complicated, isn't it? it but very important. Yes. But well, the, the we're PBDEs, laughing, but very important, right? The PBDEs that you mentioned that that uh, the Stockholm Convention introduces some legislation that's not necessarily synchronized. But it probably really kind of takes us to our next topic, which is about the Stockholm Convention. You mentioned it in your December of 22 column. And there was going to be a meeting in May to update that, another meeting related to that. Can you tell us about the Stockholm Convention? And did we have the meeting in May? What did we learn? Yeah, so the Stockholm Convention is essentially an international agreement to ban a certain set of what are called POPs, persistent organic pollutants, in markets around the world or in countries around the world. Almost every country on the planet is a party to the Stockholm Convention, notably not the United States. <laughs> so, so we don't follow it. That said, Sometimes you see EPA banning substances that uh, have been banned already by the Stockholm Convention, including, as you noted, DECA-BDE. That was banned a few years ago, I think, by the Stockholm Convention. That makes the ban in Ross now redundant, interestingly enough. But yeah, back in December, I wrote about the fact that a couple of substances that are in relatively common use in uh the supply chain and throughout the electronics industry were on the docket to uh, ban dechlorine plus, which is a, uh, a chlorine-based flame retardant, and UV-328. Uh, both those are trade names, not really chemical names, but it's a lot easier uh, for me and everyone else to say those than the actual chemical name. UV-328 is a UV absorber, and that's typically found in LCD panels so that it prevents them from clouding up after uh, a number of years of exposure to, to light. Dechlorine Plus is a flame retardant, and we see that in certain types of components. And yeah, the 11th meeting of the Conference of the Parties to the Stockholm Convention was held in May, and sure enough, the decision was made to list Dechlorine Plus and UV-328. So those are going to be banned. Now it's up to each of the countries that are party to the Stockholm Convention to incorporate those substance bans in their local regulation. I mean, these aren't absolute bans. There are exemptions, like for military and aerospace use in some cases, use in satellites and so on. But for the vast majority of uses, they'll be banned. The EU has already announced their intention to uh, regulate them under the POPs regulation. And they have a separate regulation in the EU to cover the Stockholm Convention. It's not covered under REACH or ROS or anything else. Uh, it's uh, regulation 2019-1021. And they've announced that this fourth quarter, I guess, they're going to uh, issue an amendment to uh, include these two substances there. So, gentlemen, you both mentioned um, uh, the idea of exemptions, especially in, you know, high reliability, maybe um, mission critical 
applications. So when when a a chemical or substance is banned, is there an average amount of time that the component manufacturer has in order to work on a replacement, basically? Ooh, (laughs) Uh, that's a good question. (laughs) I guess what I'm thinking is, does everybody get grandfathered? And and when do, nope, nope. No. Ke- or Kevin's shaking his head at me. No, no, they're well, serious you a, about you it. You certainly have amount of time, and to some degree it has to do with how much the market is dependent upon it and is willing to forego compliance. And so in the military, as Mike was mentioning, you, you can continue to use it for quite a long time. But that wouldn't be true in a lot of other cases. That one that really concerns me as we look at this Dechlorane Plus is uh, halogenated flame retardants are very important in anything plastic, particularly in an automobile, for, because if it catches fire, they, they want things that will not continue to burn. So there's versions uh, that if you remove the flame from it, it's, not, it's supposed to stop burning. And these types of things help that to happen. And you need that. And I mean, all of us riding cars every day. So we, we definitely need that. So my concern is likewise, well, what are we going to use instead? Is there another one that can be used for that? So in the high reliability area, personally, I think that those industries seem to be able to work the way around it. Um, but in the, the other areas that are close to high reliability, which an automobile would be like that, um, I think they have a much bigger, it's a more bigger impact on them, for sure. Mike? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there are a number of flame retardant technologies that can be used. It's just a matter of developing the material and systems to be able to use those. I mean, halogenated flame retardants are, in large part, I won't say all of them, but a lot of them are toxic and very problematic, including those in autos. And the one question is, do they really actually do anything? Do they actually work? There are studies that show that they don't really do a lot. In an accident, for instance, and especially in a in a EV where you've got batteries, and if the battery goes supernova, there's no flame retardant that's going to uh, prevent it. I mean, it can they they can they can prevent and they do prevent relatively small flames from becoming problematic. I've certainly blown up circuit boards, and the flame retardant in the circuit board or material stopped that from spreading. Thank goodness. <laughs> So yeah, it it does work, but uh, those they have a limit to how how much energy they can actually uh, prevent from causing uh, causing problems. So yeah, there's there's uh, phosphorus based flame retardants, there are metal oxide based flame retardants, and other categories as well. But yeah, changing them is a challenge. It can take time, and depending on what type of product you have, the qualification reliability testing etc can take years so when when a country like singapore for instance says okay you have one year to get the chlorine plus out of your products <laughs> their 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 ban actually begins they will not allow product to come into the country as of May 12th, 2024, that has Dechlorine Plus in it. And <laughs> that's, I think, too short. That's a lot nicer than it's, impossible. Yeah. But I, I, I do say yeah, their point, yeah. if they continue to move the goalpost, right. it'll take forever. Right. So, so it we'll, does force some hands occasionally. Yeah, we'll get closer and, and then they'll size up the, if they're going to start finding or not, basically. 
So, gentlemen, thank you. A lot of stuff today and, and really things that we didn't get to. So can I invite you both back for another episode? Absolutely. Certainly. For those of you who'd like to learn more on the topics of sustainability and compliance from subject matter expert Mike Kirshner and our very own Kevin Sink, Vice President of Total Quality here at TTI, then take a minute and push play on our next episode. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thank That's you. it for this episode of the TTI Distribution Download. For more information on any of the topics you heard about today, reach out to your nearby TTI branch at 1-800-CALL-TTI or visit us online at tti.com.